Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for our program, Women's Resilience and Survival in the Holocaust. And thank you very much to Congregation Ortzion for partnering with us on this event. I'm going to pass it over to Andre Ivory to introduce today's speaker. Thank you, Alex. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's great uh, to, on behalf of Congregation Ortzion, to welcome everyone to partner with Valley Beit Midrash on this uh, great presentation today. Um, professor uh, Bjorn Krondorfer is a Regents Professor and the Director of the Martin Springer Institute at Northern uh, Arizona University in, in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, hopefully uh, they've uh, uncovered themselves from the snow that they've gotten over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, as endowed Professor of Religious Studies, he also teaches in the Department of Comparative Cultural Studies. He received his PhD at Temple University in Philadelphia. His field of expertise is religion, gender, culture, Holocaust, and reconciliation studies. His scholarship helped define the field of critical men's study in religions. I had the benefit of watching a panel discussion with Professor Bjorn that was discussing unjust laws and their threat to democracy, which I found quite um, amazing and, and informative, and I'm sure that the topic that he's presenting on today, women's resilience in the Holocaust, you will find just as um, uh, amazing, and his uh, knowledge will enhance yours. Without further ado, uh, Bjorn, I'd like to pass it over to you. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Alex um, and Shmuli, for inviting me for uh, today's talk um, on women's resilience, Jewish women's resilience and resistance during the Holocaust. Uh, since you probably detect my accent right away, if I just say hello, um, I should probably just tell you that maybe I'm the an unlikely person to uh, bring uh, some ideas and some information on this issue to everyone who's listening today. My accent is the German accent. I was born in Germany in 1959. And for the last 10 years, I've been in Flagstaff, Arizona, at the university here, Northern Arizona University. And I'm directing an institute that is called the Martin Spring Institute, which was founded by a Holocaust survivor from Poland, from an area that is the Zanglebi district, where Benjina Sosnowicz is located, and where our talk focuses on today. What I will do in or try to do in the next uh, 40 to 45 minutes is to give you one snippet on a fairly complex topic. And I chose to really focus on Arizona and the connection to some of the survivors, um, and partially because our uh, educational institute, Holocaust Institute, is here in Arizona, and because we have survivors from the Benjin area women survivors who were residents of Arizona. They will be our two central figures, but not the only people we are looking at. But looking at one particular region in Poland, focusing on a few women, um, it's uh, really meant for us to begin thinking about 
what uh, survival and the lives of Jewish women was during the Holocaust. Generally speaking, um, the the idea that women need to be addressed and looked at separately um, in relationship to surviving the Holocaust um, has been a focus of uh, uh, scholars and historians since roughly the early 1980s. Um, and it was an important intervention in Holocaust studies to also look at gender and gender differences in terms of how people experienced, survived, or resisted the Holocaust. So by now, it's a fairly established field. Again, so what we do today is see a snippet. I will, in a moment, switch to a PowerPoint. And for most of the time, as I'm speaking, you will see a PowerPoint and follow it Afterwards, when we go to the Q&A, I return to the full screen and we would love to hear from you, your comments, your questions that you might have. And I gave Alex the permission to remind me that uh, we leave 15 minutes uh, of questions answered at the end. So if she suddenly talks, um, she has permission to remind me that I really need to come to an end, which is really helpful. So give me a second and I switch to the PowerPoint. I assume everyone can hear me well. This is, um, I added a little subtitle to today's talk. You zoomed in for the women's resilience and surviving the Holocaust. And then I added a subtitle, so far away yet close to home that relates to the Arizona connection that I just mentioned. Um, the Martin Springer Institute has an educational mandate to look at um, the legacy and history of the Holocaust and at grave injustices anywhere where they happen, um, especially if they reach the uh, form of mass violence or genocidal violence. And you'd see just a few photos of the kind of work we do. I'm not going to explain them. We've been um, in operation for 21 years now. These are the kind of speakers we invite or have invited over time. You may recognize some, others you may not, but that's precisely why we do this to bring more ideas and more people to the awareness of our community and our students. And this is the founder, one of the women we're looking at today, our founder, Doris Martin, at her 90th birthday. She did pass away last summer in August in her home in California but she used to be a long-term resident here in Flagstaff, where she and her husband founded our institute. And that is the town where she was born. It's um, one of our foci today, this one region in Poland, kind of the southwest corner, um, close to Upper Silesia, for anyone who knows the German map, the or European map at the time in history. Um, so she lived in a Polish town right next to the border of Germany at the time. Um, and uh, understandably then, for those who know the history of the World, of World War II, September, Nazi Germany attacks Poland. That is the beginning of World War II. And if you are in a town close to the border of Germany, within a few days, you're occupied by Nazi German troops. What you see here is a picture on the top that is how it looks today. This summer I was there. This green place right here, this empty space, um, is where this magnificent synagogue once stood. The Jewish synagogue of this Polish town of 50,000 people really was central. Half the population was Catholic, half the population was Jewish. 
And uh, as you can expect, um, this synagogue was destroyed by Nazi German occupation forces. There's always a saying, beware of green places, because they may actually show you where things are missing that used to be there 80 years ago. And this is what happened. I'm kind of slowly zooming in to give you context before we look at the central theme of our topic on Jewish women. This is a synagogue nine days after Nazi Germany occupied it. They burned it down, um, including um, men they um, put uh, kind of imprisoned in the synagogue. And so people were tragically burned alive. This um, drawing is by one woman who also lived in Beijing and who drew these pictures afterwards of her memory. And she interestingly writes not in Polish and not in Yiddish, but in German, Temple Vernichtung, meaning the destruction of the temple in Benjin, um, in her memory. These two ghettos, um, just for you, because we return to them, this is called the Kamyonka ghetto, becomes the ghetto of the town of Benjin. This is the um, uh, Srodula ghetto, which is part of the Snobich, where if you know the graphic noble mouse where um, the arts father um, that um, tells the story of his father's survival was imprisoned. And these are the women we are going to look at briefly, whom we're countering today, Doris Martin, the only photo that we have when she's younger, but it was taken after the war. Jane Lipsky, resident of Flagstaff, Arizona. Jane Lipsky used to be a resident of Tucson, Arizona. Ruth Galaskier, we are going to encounter. Ella Liberman Schiber, the artist that you just saw. A sketch of and Rose Recknick and Regina Safferstein and Heike Klinger. This is Rose Recknick, one of the women we're looking at today. Please note that this photo was born long before the occupation of the town of Benjin, of this Polish town. Um, and she's this little girl here. Um, in this large, large family. Um, um, and the story we tell in an exhibit that we created is really her story. We really know nothing about everyone else of her larger family who simply disappeared. And this is uh, a group of NAU students working on the so-called Benjin project, uh, retelling the story of this one particular ghetto through the voices of seven young people, including young Jewish women. Um, it became an exhibit that opened in Northern Arizona with our founder and survivor, Doris Martin, who of course has is one of the voices in the exhibit, traveling to Riverdale, New York, to different student and community populations, uh, eventually being translated against all expectations into Polish and being shown in that same area in Sosnowicz. You see the opening exhibit with uh, the non-Jewish Polish uh, people now living there who are looking at our exhibit on Jewish life and survival in their neighborhoods in 1940s. And also traveling to South Africa, to Johannesburg and to Cape Town, where we opened the exhibit to different audiences within the context of post-apartheid. So the what I want to bring to attention is how we can understand the lives of young Jewish women in during the Holocaust. And I want to suggest just a few ideas of how we can differentiate between different experiences. One would be resistance. And we always assume we know what it means, but it's actually not that easy to define. Here's one 
possibility that I put on the screen, resistance is a deliberately taken group action to oppose laws, actions, and intentions by Nazi Germany's genocidal aims. The two key words here, one is it's deliberate and not accidental, and it is a group action and not just an individual action. That's one way, and we will look at this by looking at women's stories. Survival. Surviving the genocidal assault as individuals through luck, circumstance, and individual decisions. Um, most survivors will say it was mostly luck of how we survived because we are all targeted for death. Um, but the difference between survival and resistance is that is the in, we're focusing on the individual who survived. And, and that is the gray zone in Holocaust studies. Some individuals survived in the Jewish communities through actions that were adverse to or uncooperative with the community as a whole. That is, they survived by, for example, stealing bread of the person in a bunk bed in the camp next to you, and hence surviving for yourself, but also uh, being complicit in the, your neighbor's uh, death, for example or cooperating in the so-called Jewish councils in the ghettos or the Jewish police, the Ordnungspolizei in the ghettos in Poland. These are all controversial topics, but survival generally means like as individuals, we somehow survived and some people um, made themselves um, maybe to a little bit of, uh, accumulate a little bit of guilt because they did not cooperate with the community as a whole, the Jewish community as a whole. Resilience, very difficult to define, but here is my way of saying what we're looking at. Resilience is the ability to cope with hardships through res resourcefulness, perseverance, determination, prudence, and a caring spirit that holds communities together. So it is an ability, it is a willingness to cope, and very important, it is also done with the whole community in mind. And we will see some of this being played out by the young woman that I use as an example from the area of Benjin and Sosnovich. Ruth Galaski, one of the women, actually she never turned to become a woman. She always remained a teenager. Um, Ruth Galaski um, was about 14 or 15 years old when she actually was deported to Auschwitz and perished. But while she was in this little town of Benjin, half the population Jewish, half the population Catholic, she started writing a notebook. And she basically wrote in a notebook what teenagers write about their longings for love and care and friendship, about her depression uh, with the Nazi occupation, about the difficulties of surviving, of going into hiding, of being afraid for her parents, uh, interspersed with a moment where she's angry about a young Jewish boy who doesn't um, reciprocate the love she feels. Um, and she eventually perishes. The photo down here put there, this is Benjin today. This is the house where she used to live and where she wrote the notebook. Um, the, her story, the way I presented it to you, is a story of trying to survive and not being able to survive. She never joined the resistance movement. She did had, had no opportunities to really actively be resilient. She simply tried to survive with her family for a 
few years under Nazi occupation. One day, she and her parents are taken to the trains and deported to nearby Auschwitz-Birkenau, where she perishes. What did not perish, uh, what did not perish, are her notebooks. She gave it to a neighbor, a friend, um, a Polish neighbor, Polish Catholic neighbor and friend, who kept her diary um, until um, the early 2000s when the diary emerged and um, was given to Yad Vashem, where it was translated, um, first published in Polish and translated into English in 2006. So we do have her words. They survived, but she did not. In Poland, she's also known as the Anna Frank of Poland, because in many ways, um, also on a slimmer volume, she kind of really writes as a young uh, Jewish woman's voice, trying to make sense of what is happening around her. And she's one of the women who appears in our traveling exhibit. Doris Martin, the founder of our um, institute from Benjamin. She's also a teenager. Um, she survived. Um, so survival works very well for her as a term. She survived. She never had an opportunity to join a resistance movement. She was... Uh, taken away from her parents because she was young. She was uh, selected by Nazi Germany as a young woman for slave or forced labor, sent to a small women's labor camp that was administered by Gross Rosen, which you see on the left-hand side, which was a very infamous administrative concentration camp, spent um, maybe a week or so in Auschwitz-Birkenau. That is a photo down here, how it looks like today eventually made it to Arizona, founded our institute, and published her memoirs. When she talks about her survival, it is truly that of survival. The hardships of not getting enough food, of not getting enough warm clothing during the winter, the beatings in the camps, the pressures, um, and um, resistance is this deliberate action, group action, she never has an opportunity to join any kind of resistance movement because she's taken out so quickly. There are amazing moving moments in her memoir, and it's hard to exactly say what they are. But for example, um, she was in hiding for a moment, which is part of the survival strategy. Um, then one day her mother gets arrested and her mother is threatened with deportation. At this point, she emerges out of hiding and takes her mother's place. Um, that's not exactly resistance, nor is it exactly resilience, but it's an amazingly courageous and ethical act. And um, then her mother is saved, who also survived, and she is taken in her stead for the slave labor. This is actually her former home of uh, Doris Martin. This is a group of Arizona teachers. We took there to her former home. Uh, these two Polish uh, uh, couple is now the owner of this house. They allowed us in. They welcomed us. They knew about uh, Doris Martin and her story and, uh, and welcomed us in unbelievably open-minded ways and really wanted to know about Doris more. The book um, our host is holding is Doris Martin's memoir translated into Polish when our host got this from us as a present, She started crying because she for the first time, knew she finally can read the full story of the person who used to live to live in the house that they are living in now in Benjamin. James Lipsky. 
a woman about the same age as Doris, but a woman who decides to join the resistance movement. So here we're not talking about survival, but, but about resistance. Jane Lipsky uh, eventually ended up living in Tucson. Uh, we visited her with our student group on this picture and interviewed her. This is uh, the book where she writes about her own life. With her story, it becomes very complicated. Yes, she was the same age as Doris. She's a teenager. She decides to join the Jewish youth movement, um, the Zionist Jewish youth movement. Slowly, the Zionist Jewish youth movement understands that all of them will eventually perish and they begin to create bunkers, um, to create structures by which they try to support themselves. Her task is to uh, get an ID, false ID, leave the ghetto and try to find weapons, very primitive weapons for the day that the Nazis would liquidate, that is empty the ghetto. Um, she eventually manages to escape um, into to Slovakia. Uh, she finds her husband there, a Slovakian man. They marry in the forests with the resistance movement. And here comes the interesting change of the story. Having resisted Nazi Germany in the in the ghetto, escaping to the partisans in Slovakia fighting Nazi Germany's Nazi Germany, she and her husband get, get arrested by the Soviet Union, by Soviet soldiers. They sent her and her husband to Moscow. In Moscow, she is suspected to be a German spy because she speaks German. She's put into solitary confinement. Her husband is suspected to be a spy too and is shot by the Soviet Union. And she eventually um, gets um, a prison term um, without parole, except if a little bit later she it's reduced to seven years. And that is the prison cell where this young Jewish woman fighting against Nazi Germany in the resistance, in the partisans, getting arrested by the Soviet Union, who are the enemies of Nazi Germany, put into this isolation cell and then put into a camp in the Gulag system, the Soviet Gulag system, where she does not get freed until 1947. That is two and a half years after the Holocaust came to an end. Life gets very complicated for people during these genocidal times. It also turned out, which we later found out, that Jane Lipsky and Art Spiegelman, the author of the graphic novel Mouse, are related by family. Her father and his father are cousins. For those who know the Mouse um, graphic novel and how, and how it was banned uh, last year in the Tennessee school and the whole controversy that it um, triggered, this might be really interesting, um, these, these little connections. If you never heard of Mouse, just take it as a side note. This is how Mouse looks like, the graphic novel. Um, this is the son, this is the father. It's based on Arch Spiegelman's uh, real story. Arch Spiegelman's father is a survivor from the same area. And he basically, the father tells the story to the son and says, so we came to Sosnovich Stadium and from there we were deported. And that's how he depicts it in his memory. And that is a stadium today. It is a soccer stadium again, as it was in 1940s, before it became a deportation place of the Jewish community to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And as you can see, 
our Benjin exhibit that we created here in Flagstaff ended up on the fence of the soccer stadium two years ago and stayed there for three months without any vandalism in the middle of a working class Polish neighborhood today. This is how it looks today. The soccer stadium you can see in the back there. There's a little memorial plaque that reminds people today that this was the deportations place for Jewish people, um, including, um, for example, Doris, who went to Auschwitz from that um, assembly place. Raika Klinger. She's not from Arizona. She has no Arizona connection, except that um, we came across her life. Um, Raika Klinger is a story um, that clearly puts us into the realm of resistance. Heike Klinger grew up in Benjin um, to an Orthodox family, but got a, a secular, more assimilated education because her parents are very keen on this one. And very early on, she joins the Jewish, um, poli Jewish political Zionist movement, the Hashomer Hatzair, and becomes a leading figure in that group. This group of young women and men in Benjin begin to see faster than other people that what is happening in Poland under Nazi occupation might eventually lead to the full destruction of the Jewish community in Poland. Not everyone in the town believed that, but the young people actually ended up believing it much faster. What Heike Klinger and other young women like her could not understand is why the Jewish councils, these were men forced into positions to administer the ghettos for Nazi Germany. They couldn't understand why these councils were so cooperative with Nazi policies. And their first acts of resistance were actually against the Jewish council policies and the police or Ordnungsdienst uh, in German, the police that the Jewish council put into place to keep the Jewish population in line with the orders of uh, the, the Nazi, different Nazi command, commandments. Heike and other people said, this is wrong. And what they do, they begin to uh, find weapons. Um, they go out of the ghettos with false IDs. They first get false IDs. They try to smuggle weapons back in. They create a contact to the resistance movement in the Warsaw Ghetto, which was the largest Jewish resistance movement. There's constant coming and going between Warsaw and Benjin. And uh, they are preparing for the moment that Nazis will, in the Nazi language, liquidate the Jewish population from their ghettos, and they want to fight back. They're um, building an underground bunkers, in very harrowing terms, um, does she describe what these bunkers looked like and how the conditions in these bunkers were when they actually went into hiding when the final deportations started to take place. She eventually escapes um, and she writes um, kind of her, while she's still in Poland in hiding and then later in Slovakia in hiding, she begins writing what she experienced, including being captured by Nazi Germany after their bunker was discovered, tortured by Nazi Germany, but then she could escape. So she begins writing and uh, it was republished her writings um, in English 
under the title that you see on the right-hand side, I'm writing these words to you, the original diaries from Benjin, 1943. These are probably the first diaries that were written and, and eventually published um, that we know of from this particular region and town because they're written as early as fall of 1943, very fresh, um, not 20 years later. Heike Klinger ended up in Israel. She had children. Um, her children are still alive. Her son very much is now working on a more complete diary and uh, life story of, of her, his mom and what happened to her. It's available in Hebrew and in Polish, not yet in English. And tragically, Heike committed suicide in 19, I think it was 1958 or 1959 at the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. When we talk about resistance, yes, these are heroes, but that doesn't mean that these people, these women in the resistance were not also deeply traumatized people after the Holocaust and after the war. So if someone survives, um, has two children, has a new life and a husband, lives in Israel, commits suicide at a fairly, at middle age, you, you kind of know that the trauma never quite left her of what it meant for her to survive these hard times. But her story is a very, very clearly a story of resistance, not just survival, because she did things that were not meant for her to necessarily survive personally, but as a group action to protect the Jewish community. When we went with 20 Arizona teachers to Poland, to Benjin and Sosnowicz this summer, um, we came across this big building here that stands today in the center of Sosnowicz. That used to be the building of the Jewish Council that Heike Klinger and other young people resisted because they felt that they are cooperating too much with Nazi Germany. These are the Jewish Council members from this area. This is Moishe Marine, the head of the Jewish Council, sitting right here with his big staff of people. And this is the town as it looked like at the time. Um, the first resistance, as I mentioned before, was really trying to contain what the Jewish council, the elders of the, uh, um, they were called the elders, um, what they were doing before they finally prepared for um, physical resistance against the Nazi deportations. Here you see, this is Heike Klinger, right in the center, sitting here, a very intense person. You can see it from her looks. This is uh, in Benjin. They're sitting in a small agricultural plot that they got um, to meet and grow some vegetables in 1942-1943. And this is actually how the resistance happened. These were the groups of young people deciding that we do not go down without some fight. Um, needless to say, getting weapons, not being trained, they had really no chance against the Nazi machinery, but it was an important mental, physical, spiritual um, statement uh, against the genocidal policies of Nazi Germany. I come back to the image that you saw before. I mentioned Rose Recknick. Rose Recknick, she's no longer with us either, but her daughters are. They're now living in New Jersey. Uh, Rose Recknick is pretty much a story of survival. She survived Auschwitz-Birkenau against all odds. Um, she contracted typhus. Uh, her mom died um, in Auschwitz-Birkenau of typhus. She did not. And we have this picture here because we wanted to tell her stories through her words from 1931. 
And now I need to digress. Just hold, keep, uh, keep your focus. You will see how it all comes together. I'm jumping back to Art Spiegelman. In his second volume of his graphic novel, he has one picture, one only one picture at the end of the page that is the one that I'm showing here. And it simply says, there were four young girls that sneaked out over the ammunitions for this. They hanged them near my workshop. They were good friends of Anya from Sosnovich. They hanged a long, long time. The grammar is meant to um, show the, the inflection of Art's surviving father, his Polish inflection in the English language. And the only thing you see in the graphic novels are four bodies hanging, and there's nothing else in there. Easy to miss. And yet it has a full history. These are the four young women that are hanging that Art Spiegelmann is describing. Four young women who were in the resistance, like Heike Klinger, but these are four other women, two from Benjin, including Regina Safferstein, this woman here. What they did is they were prisoners in Auschwitz-Birkenau. They were laborers in Auschwitz-Birkenau. They had a chance to move in between the factories that the Nazis, where the Nazis exploited Jewish labor and the camp of Birkenau. And they tried to smuggle gunpowder to the so-called Jewish Sonderkommando, these poor men forced to, Jewish men forced to operate the gas chambers um, and the crematories. Um, and they smuggled gunpowder to the Sonderkommando resistance, the male resistance, who wanted to blow up these um, crematories and gas chambers to stop the machinery. Um, these four women were, at the end, were caught smuggling in it, were tortured, interrogated, tortured, eventually hanged, including Regina Safferstein. And the hanging that is depicted here is Art Spiegelmann's um, recollection of his father's memoir, uh, memories. Another site, and you will see why. This is Ella Lieberman Schieber, a young woman, also from Benjin, also survived. She's a survivor. She survived in Auschwitz-Birkenau because she, the Nazis realized she is a painter. She's an artist. And they asked her, they put her in a separate building and asked her to do paintings for them. Um, after the war, after 1945, she left Europe, was briefly um, caught in Cyprus in the British camp because the British didn't want her to go to Israel or then Palestine. And during this time, being in the British camp in Cyprus, she remembers what happened in Benjin and that area. You see in this picture down here, the destruction of the temple. Here's another depiction of her, which speaks to women's survival. It says in German, tragedy in the bunker. Um, small children are smothered by the mother's hand, are suffocated by the mother's hand. Um, that is, a Nazi is looking for a hiding place up here. People are hiding down here, the babies start crying, and the mothers decide to suffocate their own babies. And we know this from many, many stories that this was true. And that is her memory in this depiction. Another part of how difficult it was for women to survive and the additional burdens that women had, both as victims of sexual assault. Some of the women I talked about were sexually assaulted in different camps, but also what mothers had to do in order to survive. Really hard. Um, hard, hard, traumatic lives. 
as far as I know, her memoirs are not translated into English, but they exist in German. And Ella Liebermann um, Schipper is the, also, from her memory, draws the hanging of two of the four women that I've just talked about, Regina Safferstein among them, um, who were hanged by the Nazis in Auschwitz-Birkenau because they smuggled, as part of the resistance effort, gunpowder for the Sonderkommando. And here all the stories come together. Remember Rose Recknick? Just about everyone that everyone that her family does not survive except her, and then comes New Jersey. And that's how we end our exhibit, this picture of her, basically saying, like, we only know the voice of this little girl, Rose Recknick, of none of the other family members. And yet later we took a closer look and realized that Rose here is related to this person here, which is her aunt. And her aunt is Virginia Safferstein, the woman in the resistance who was tortured, hanged in Auschwitz-Birkenau. It's actually in this wonderful idyllic picture pre-war. Um, she barely survives, but her aunt is actually one of the women who did not survive, but was in the resistance. And it took us really more by accident than um, intentionally to, to make these connections between different life stories. Again, we know a little bit about her, nothing from her, but about her. We know things from Rose because she wrote her memoirs. And we know just about nothing about every single other person that was lost in the Holocaust. And that is where I want to stop and see what questions you might have or responses or reactions. Thank you so much. Uh, if anybody has a question, please, please uh, feel free to raise your hands uh, and unmute. Hi, <clears throat> pardon me, just a comment. Um, my aunt survived Ravensbrück and then another camp and then was on the forced march. And she survived with a cost. I mean, she never emotionally, how does anyone get over it? But I mean, she was a wreck and my cousin did not do well um anyways but in toronto there were quite a few women who had survived Ravensbrook, which was a, a woman's camp and quite horrific i i just want to mention that and i want to mention also what a what a price they paid with their survival and how they managed to transfer the trauma to the next generation thanks Thank you, Lauren. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned Ravensbrück. Uh, one of the women that I mentioned ends up in Ravensbrück for a short time, too. It is the only women's camp. It doesn't mean that women were not incarcerated somewhere else, but it was a camp particularly designed for women. Um, and not just Jewish women, um, po uh, political prisoners, Jewish uh, female political prisoners from France, from other places, who meet then Jewish uh, women in Ravensbrück. Most of the Ravensbrück camp, this women camps north of Berlin, is actually run by female SS guards. And Ravensbrück was also known as the training center for female guards, female concentration guards. So it both functioned as a training ground for Nazi women guards who were then sent off to other camps, as well as a purely uh, women's labor camp. And uh, 
lots of stories to be told about Ravensbrück, and it's still there as a memorial site, not too far away from Berlin. Within, you can easily, if you ever go there, um, do a day trip there and really learn much about women's lives there. So thank you for your comment, Lauren. Why do we hear so much about the male survivors and not so much about the women? Well, <laughs> um, a pioneer in bringing our attention to women's experiences during the Holocaust was Joan Ringelheim in the um, starting in the late 1970s, um, early 1980s. It was a hard battle for her to get her voice heard as saying there is a place to look at women's experiences as something different from men's experiences. The criticism that was mostly feminist historians who started this debate, what Jewish feminist historians, the criticism they got is like, you are dividing the Jewish population into men and women when we really, we, everyone was targeted, everyone was targeted because they were Jewish. They were not targeted because they're women or men or children, but because they were Jewish, um, which of course is true. I mean, the feminist historians never said that it's not true, but they said the experiences of women is different. Uh, it has nothing to do with survival rates or non-survival rates, but the challenges that women faced during the genocidal anti-Semitic campaign of Nazi Germany were different from men. Not as one title of a book on women and Holocaust says, um, oh, now I'm blanking on the title, something different hell, same same, same horrors, different, different hell, but same horrors, or, or just vice versa. But basically like, yes, we all went to the same hell, but we experienced different kinds of horrors. And for women, obviously, it is the sexual assault uh, that was a prime experience for women survivors or those who did not survive, um, including the care of children. These are the two ones that are very big, uh, but other things in terms of um, survival rates, women simply didn't have as much of a survival chance than men once they entered the different camps. And only if you were young and healthy looking as a woman were you selected for forced labor. Um, True for men too, but but women were just much quicker sent to the gas chambers and killed than men. So there are clearly differences in the experience of what it meant to survive, whether we were men or women. Um, hope that answered your question, at least in a very fra fragmentary way. I have a, a statement. Um, many Holocaust survivors never talked about their experiences. And I understand the trauma and everything. But I was privileged when I was teaching on Grandparents' Day to have two grandparents that were survivors. And they shared their experience with the class and with the other grandparents around. And of course, the Jewish grandparents knew about the Holocaust, but it still amazed, me, amazed them that these people had survived and the non-Jewish parents would just, they kept mouthing to me, is this for real? Is this for real? And I kept saying, yes, yes, yes. So I think ed education, educating the younger generation and future generations is so important. That's my only comment. 
Thank you, Alan. I, I agree. And I'm certainly not an authority on this topic, but in my 40 years of living in the United States and, and working within the Jewish community and with descendants of survivors and survivors, especially in the 80s and 90s when they were still, uh, in terms of numbers, more around us, mm. I think the experience of descendants of uh, survivors is different for everyone. Um, some say my parents talk all the time incessantly about it, um, and we, we, it, everything was compared to what happened in the Holocaust. Right. Um, and others said, you know, my parents were very quiet, never said much, but everyone knew that their parent or sometimes both parents survived. I mean, that was not a secret, but it was more a matter of how much did people, how often, how much did people share. And it's understandable, Alan, that some people just couldn't. Um, I'll give you just one quick example. I worked with a survivor from Sosnowicz who went to Blechhammer and Auschwitz and, and Buchenwald and other camps, helped him write his memoir. And um, his son was supposed to read it before it gets published to write a foreword. And then it turns out the, fun, the son never read the, uh, the, the story, wrote, wrote a foreword without reading the memoir. Yeah. Somehow he couldn't find the courage to read what his father experienced including such things that his father jumped into a cesspool to survive a selection in one of the camps you know basically almost suffocating in the pardon my language in the shit of the other prisoners do you want to know this as a son or not you know it's, it's tough so what parts do you share what do you not share for women survivors because that's our topic today it was really, really hard to say anything about sexual violations. Um, that was one of the taboo topics until women historians and social psychologists began asking women specifically, women survivors specifically, and gave them the space to talk about it. And to no surprise to us today, most of them had some stories about sexual violation and sexual violence. It was just a taboo topic until, I would say, mid-1980s. And now, and, and one more, one more talk, one more say. One of the big taboo topics is about homosexual um, violence. Um, men would really not talk about. You hardly ever find anything in memoirs by men talking about sexuality or sexual violence uh, against them, or maybe something they themselves participated in as a Jewish ghetto policeman, which which we know they unfortunately also committed sexual violence against their own Jewish population in their position. So there are many taboo topics still around issues of gender. I also just want to say that I've read Mouse, and I really have to go back and read it a second and third time because there's so I much I had to there. do this too. There's so much in it. It is a wonderful book. I mean, and I, I like the way you talk about the, the English... Um, I don't know if mimicking is the wrong word, but the expressions and stuff I remember from my grandparents and from other family members, they don't clean up the grammar. It's the way people spoke. Yeah. It was just. I agree. Yeah. There's a comment by, I, I, I probably mispronounced your name, Aglalia. Oh, Aglaya, yes. Aglaya. Hi. 
So, yeah, it's just um, it's something that really bothers me, though, is that um, also in a lot of different branches of history, no one wants to talk about sexual violence against um, men. And I think it kind of feeds into a lot of the stigmas, you know, surrounding not only but also all forms of when seeing women's history as women's history. You're and my comment is, yes, it's definitely a particular situation, those you know, feminist historians who are saying that women's history is different from men's history, you know, they were right. But a lot of the um, studying women's history, though, there's also a lot of silence about different aspects of, you know, mass, you know, masculinity, too. Unfortunately, some men in so-called privileged positions in the camps, privileged positions means you were like a block eldest or a labor overseer, usually put into that position by Nazi Germans, but sometimes you volunteered and got it um, because you had higher survival chances. Mm -hmm. Some of these men abused 14, 15 year old boys in the camps, prison boys, and they were called peoples, peoples or peoples, the two different pronunciations. Um, we know this from many, many sources. We know not a single, there's one source maybe, but pretty much no source of a young boy who survived this who ever spoke about it in their memoirs. But we know it from other people speaking about them. Um, so there were this, and we know there were some, basically as a matter of support, homoerotic activity probably. Um, some scholars call it uh, situational homosexuality, meaning you, you experience some warmth and strength with each other as men in the camps when you had the... Uh, 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 you know, enough food, so to speak, uh, and some protection to do so. But you never talked about it because you were afraid that this might be misinterpreted, that you are homosexual and people didn't want to be seen this way. So there are lots of, you know, lots of things around issues of sexuality in the Holocaust that still need more explorations. doesn't take okay. away from the fact that sexual violence was primarily an issue for women survivors. It's just for me, I think it um, contributes to the stigma against women, you know, talking about women's concerns when you, you know, kind of say, oh, it's only a girl issue, so. I, I was just Ros say Rosaline asked a very general question. <laughs> that would lead us into a completely <laughs> different topic, but let me just put it this way. When I came to the United States at age 24 to study religious studies at Temple University in Philadelphia, I met, uh, Jewish men and women my age who were studying for the rabbinate and doing, taking a PhD in religious studies. And I suddenly realized how little I know about my own history and about the Holocaust and about the Jewish community as it survived after the Holocaust. What I knew was mostly Jewish life ended in 1945. I never really gave it a thought growing up in Germany that the Jewish community was alive and doing well um, 50 years. 40, 50 years later. So there was a lot uh, steep learning curve for me as someone growing up in Germany and then deciding to stay here and work in that area. That's a, that's a short version. LGBTQ, yes, <laughs> absolutely. That's kind of the new, new field of research now, how the LGBTQ community survived or did not survive, whether they identified as such at the time, um, 
how they built their own small communities. A new book just came out about um, the LGBTQ community in Germany, um, just in the transition from um, the Weimar Republic to, to uh, Hitler's takeover in 1933, and how some of them identified as Zionists and LGBTQ, formed their own little cliques. Um, some decided to stay in Germany, some decided to go to Israel. There's much more research to be done in, in that area. And that's just Germany. I'm, you know, we're not even looking at Eastern Europe right now. Marissa, happy to see that you're part of it. Um, yes, I, I, I tried to, uh, maybe not clear enough that Ravensbrück is where a place was, was not designed as a Jewish women's camp. It was designed as a camp for women who were political prisoners in most cases. But towards the end of the war, of course, uh, uh, when the Soviet Union overruns different camps in the East, um, lots of Jewish women end up in the um, in the Ravensbrück camp too. And if you were a political prisoner who happens to be Jewish, you would have ended up in, could have ended up in Ravensbrück as well. All right. If there are no further questions, then I'd like to wrap up and thank you so much, Professor Bjorn, for joining us today uh, for a, a sometimes difficult, but of course, very important uh, conversation. And again, thank you to Orzion for co-sponsoring today's program. Uh, just to quickly let everyone know about our upcoming events next week, uh, we have Rabbi David Kasher coming on Wednesday and Thursday, first in Phoenix on Wednesday and then in Denver on Thursday, uh, both available virtually as well, so anyone can join in. Um, and then on Thursday, we have uh, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Cherniak for his talk, Get Real, Can Psychedelics Be Healing? Um, I believe that's at 11 a.m. Mountain Time uh, on Thursday. Um Please don't forget tomorrow, January 27, um, International Holocaust Remembrance Day that coincides with the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau by Soviet troops on January 27, 1945. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that reminder as well. Um, uh, what did you say it coincides with? Sorry. With the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau by Soviet troops. And the international community decided to make this the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is different from the Yom HaShoah uh, event um, commemorated in the Jewish community. I mean, it commemorates the same thing, but they're two different dates. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.